But coming off worldly, you're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. It seems like a lot more people are going to space these days. Commercial companies are not only sending NASA astronauts into space, they're giving ordinary people, with the right amount of cash, the chance to fly in space, too. Last year, we saw the commercial space tourism business kick into high gear, with trips from Jeff Bezos's Blue Origin, Richard Branson's Virgin Galactic, and Elon Musk's SpaceX. Netflix took us with the all-civilian crew of inspiration for last summer, and William Shatner traveled to the edge of space, bringing back with him profound words of the experience once on the ground. With the opportunities to fly into space growing, and hopefully the cost shrinking, it's easy to imagine one day you or I get the chance to see Earth from space. Laura Forsick wants us all to start thinking about that opportunity and planning and training for a future where we get the chance to venture into orbit. We'll speak with Forsick about her new book, Becoming Offworldly, Learning from Astronauts to Prepare for Your Spaceflight Journey. Then, a University of Central Florida researcher is on the hunt for water on the moon. Carrie Donaldson Hanna is a co-investigator of the Lunar Trailblazer mission, a CubeSat that will survey the moon for potential pockets of ice. Are We There Yet's intern Beatrice Oliveira speaks with Donaldson Hanna about the mission and why water on the moon is so important for future deep space exploration. That's ahead on Are We There Yet, here on WMFE, America's Space Station. What does it take to go to space? More and more commercial companies are giving regular people the chance to go, so if we want, what do we need to do to prepare? Scientist and policy analyst Laura Forsick spoke with dozens of space flyers, both government astronauts and civilian spaceflight participants, and asked just that. She joins us now to talk about her new book, Becoming Offworldly, Learning from Astronauts to Prepare for Your Spaceflight Journey. Laura, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me again. So the book is Becoming Off-Worldly Learning from Astronauts to Prepare for Your Spaceflight Journey. So let's say I want to be an astronaut. What is the number one thing I should be doing right now? Not lose hope. Don't discount yourself. So I think the majority of us do that, whether we're in the space sector or not. We think that it's impossible. It's not for us. It's for the best of the best. But the world is changing. And now space is opening up for more and more types of people. And you don't need to be a right stuff military test pilot. You don't need to be even a scientist or an engineer, although I am biased as a scientist. But space is for everyone. And we are seeing more and more types of people fly. Laura, you and I have talked about space-related issues for almost a decade now. We talk a lot about space tourism and commercial space. In those early conversations, did you ever expect that This year, 2022, we would have so many different options for regular people to experience space. I hoped so. But no one really knew when this was coming. We all hoped it was coming. Most people hoped it was coming much sooner. Um, The early shuttle era comes to mind when we, you know, I wasn't necessarily involved back then, but um, when people thought that the space shuttle would be literally a shuttle taking all kinds of people to and from space, 
and that did not happen because the space shuttle was just so expensive and then the Challenger accident occurred and they limited the numbers and types of people who could fly. And now the change is that commercial space flight. Uh, private companies, Suborbital Elite, we've got Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin. Orbital Elite, we've got SpaceX, uh, and they partner with Axiom Space. You know, these companies are starting to evolve. So now is the time where more and more people for real are starting to fly. You mentioned some of those pathways into space. We've got Blue Origin, Virgin Galactic. There's also SpaceX taking private citizens. We saw the Inspiration4 mission last year, and there's also the Axiom private space mission uh, happening soon. Is that it, or are there other ways that people can get to space coming online soon? This is just the beginning, right? So these are the initial companies that are succeeding, and there are other companies working on things like commercial space stations, um, other ways to get to orbit, uh, what's called near space or high-altitude stratospheric balloons. Um, So there are all kinds of places where you could um, fit yourself in, depending on where you want to go, even cislunar and lunar tourism, um, and what you want to do and how long you want to be up there. And even if you want to stay firmly on the ground, there is space analogs. Um, those have been around for a little while, and you could you know, get the, the feel of space. Or you could go up on a plane and get the feel of microgravity for 25 seconds at a time uh, over and over and over again, depending on how many parabolas you do on those planes. And so it's it's really accessible to a large number of people, depending on whether you want to stay on Earth and sort of pretend to be in space or get the feel of microgravity um, in little bits and pieces, even a roller coaster ride, or go up to space by yourself. Um, not, not by yourself, but go up to space yourself and um, make sure that you have that experience of whether it's a suborbital flight for four minutes or going off to the moon. For your book, you interviewed astronauts and people who had been to space. What was what was the final number of how many people you talked to? Oh, you put me on the spot. I think it was about 32 people I interviewed. Um, the majority of them were flown astronauts, uh, private individuals as well as governments, and governments not just NASA but also ESA, Japanese Space Agency, Korea, um, and then also um, – future flyers, and four of those future flyers were uh, flown before the book was published. Um, A number of those future flyers are still waiting for their rides, and a few um, pioneers in the space industry as well, and one spaceflight provider. So what was the common thread between those two dozen plus people you interviewed? What what kind of What connected them all? For the astronauts, I wanted them to tell me what surprised them about spaceflight. And I saw a lot of common threads there. Um, Things that seem obvious, right? The view from space, microgravity, um, crew companionship and, and closeness. I mean, things that you could probably guess, but still surprise them. Because until you do it, until you see that spectacular view of Earth from above, or until you experience longer duration microgravity, you can't really prepare. Launch is another one. Um, Several astronauts gave me descriptions of launch, despite the fact that they had trained so hard for that launch, it still surprised them. Um, With the future flyers, I wanted to know why they were doing this. And there were several themes there of um, inspiring others, experiencing it for themselves, um, paving a way forward for those who will come. You told me not to lose hope at the start of our conversation, but when I look at some of these vehicles or specifically the price tags of seats on these vehicles, I don't think that I'm going to ever have a chance to do that. Um, What do you say to the idea that, you know, space is being opened up for everyone, but there's still a massive hurdle of cost to get over if all of us want to be able to have that experience? Right. So the term thrown around right now is democratization of space. That means space for everyone. And we're not there yet. That is a goal. 
the narrative of billionaires in space is a strong one because we do see a lot of those, especially last summer, uh, Virgin Galactic flying Richard Branson, Jeff Bezos flying on Blue Origin. So that billionaire in space narrative continues because they are the funders, these initial funders. And what's common with most technologies is that it starts out expensive and for the elites and then comes down in price for the majority of humankind who want to participate. You know, the, the, the cell phones and the cars and aircraft or I should say airline tickets. Um, these are the things that become accessible over time. And we're at the point now where billionaires, yes, they're, they're flying themselves, but they're also flying others. So um, we are seeing you know, financed flights that, uh, uh, yes, a billionaire has bought or a multimillionaire has bought the tickets, but flying people like you and me who have that ability um, to you know, participate but not to pay for it. Oh, we got it. And, and- optimistic future ahead um, when we look at equitable access to space and a diverse cast of people going um, are we going in the right direction there we are going in the right direction we're just going slowly but we're seeing it speed up now with more and more opportunities the limited supply is what really um, you know made us think that it was something so untouchable that almost no one could become an astronaut but once supply opens up We've already known that demand is so high for these uh, flights that we are going to see more and more people fly. And the more you see someone like yourself fly, whether that's someone of the same color skin or the same country of origin or the same language or the same religion or the same you know disability that you have, um, whatever that commonality is that you see, you will be able to internalize that and realize that you too can go. When you talk to these astronauts and spaceflight participants and you ask them about this kind of being an exemplar in showing them that, you know, people that look like me can go to space. Do they do they recognize the kind of impact that they're having when it comes to that before they go on their missions? Or is this something they kind of learn when they come back and, and talk to the people that they inspired back here on Earth? From what I've seen with the people I've spoken with, they know ahead of time that they are going to be viewed because they're one of those firsts, right? Whether it's a true first, like the first X person to do X, right? The first person to, uh, the first black woman to pilot a uh, spacecraft in the terms of Dr. Cyan Proctor and the Inspiration Formation. You know, if you're one of those firsts, you know those eyes are on you. But even if you're a collective first, like this first Axiom mission to the International Space Station is the first private astronaut mission sponsored by NASA, for example, we don't necessarily know individually all those people. I mean, I do, but the common person might not know them, but it is a first, and they know that NASA is going to be watching, and um, SpaceX and Axiom are watching, and the people in the spaceflight community are watching. So it's it's, uh, a commonality that they want to do things right. Jared Isaacman, I interviewed before his flight, before the, the Inspiration4 crew was even announced. And he had that mindset even back then, about a year ago, actually, where he knew that this was just paving the way forward for people who would come behind him. And we've seen that leadership from him now with the Polaris Project. So I think that whoever it is is, who's uh, signed up to fly, they know that eyes are going to be on them because this is the birth, the initial uh, infancy of a brand new industry. And that Polaris Project, we should remind our listeners, that's a a set of at least three missions um, bankrolled by Jarek Isaacman on various SpaceX vehicles. Um, uh, This is a private citizen purchasing a flight to space, which leads me to my next question. With with people like Jarek Isaacman going, it it seems like 
he didn't get enough of space and is and is now getting the chance to go back. I mean, have you have you talked to any astronaut who was like, yeah, my time up there that that was enough. I'm done. <laughs> I don't want to go back again. Or, or do they all have this kind of desire to want to fly again and go back to space? That was not a question I asked all the astronauts, but for those that I interviewed who were government astronauts, I asked them if they would fly on a commercial vehicle, and they all said yes. Uh, you know, so that is just an indication of one, space is addictive, right? If you've gone up once, and I, as several of the um, people who had flown multiple times, such as Katie Coleman, for example, um, she said that she adjusted uh, more quickly each time and that space was quote unquote delicious. And, um, you know, Sandy Magnus also had that same perspective of, you know, adjusting more quickly each time. So it's almost like riding a bicycle. Your body just gets used to it um, more and more quickly, the longer you up and the more times you go up. Um, and then one person I interviewed actually is going to go up again. Uh, Michael Lopez Alegria is going to be launching on that Axiom flight. He's gone four times with NASA and now he's going with a private company. Um, and so it is not something that I think that an astronaut would say no to, except for that supply and demand concern, because I have heard from flown astronauts that they, you know, they understand that this is a beautiful experience and they want more and more people to experience it. So a lot of astronauts would not take somebody else's seat if it's a newbie who can fly up there and see the Earth from above and experience that wonderfulness that is spaceflight. Yeah, I wouldn't imagine someone would say, yeah, I don't need to do that again. <laughs> so, uh, these private astronauts that you talk to, uh, do they talk to civilian astronauts and, and get some advice from them before leaving the planet? What kind of advice um, do these government astronauts give to private astronauts uh, getting ready to fly? That's probably a great question to ask them individually. When I spoke to people like Jared Isaacman and Kaylee Arsenault of the Inspiration4 Project, they... Um, they had both gotten, and they were both just announced, right? So they hadn't spent a whole lot of time at all processing, especially Haley, who had just been selected. Um, they had said that they had spoken with uh, flown astronauts to get advice from them. And that's sort of something I wanted to capture in this book, because not everybody is going to have that experience of being able to talk to all of these astronauts and get all of that really great advice. So I wanted to sort of capture those insights from experienced astronauts who can say, this is what I was prepared for, and this surprised me, even though I thought I'd be prepared for it. And here's what I was told. And here's how it was different from what I expected. It seemed like that's a problem we're going to be running into and a, and a good problem to have, right? There's just too many people going to space. They won't have an opportunity to talk to these folks. I mean, that, that's a pretty incredible problem to have. And the more people who fly, remember, there's only been about 600, little more than 600 people who have ever flown in space in about half a little more than half a century, right? Um, so now with hopefully supply going up. We, we still have to like get through some hurdles here of initial space flight, especially um, with some of those promised Virgin Galactic flights. Um, Blue Origin hasn't yet flown this year. You know, SpaceX is only going to fly humans a few times per year, at least with Falcon 9. We're going to see how it goes with Starship. The supply side is still limited, but we could easily double the number of people who have ever been in space in a very short amount of time. As we move towards that goal of, of doubling the amount of people that have been to space. Uh, you know, you mentioned your book outlined some of the things that you should be thinking about doing to prepare yourself for that. Um, other than not losing hope, as you mentioned at the start of our conversation, what are some of the things that, you know, people might want to participate in spaceflight need to be doing 
or should be thinking about right now? Staying healthy, um, making sure you take care of your body in whatever way. And that doesn't necessarily mean that you need to be doing survival training, although some people thrive in that. Some people go climb mountains to prepare themselves for their space flight. But it could be just taking a stroll around the block every day. It could be doing something like making sure that you're not abusing your body with you know, alcohol, cigarettes, those kinds of things. Um, preparing your mind is another one, making sure you understand that this is something that is risky. Space flight is inherently risky and putting that in perspective for your friends and family who will be also taking that risk in a different way along with you. Um, also preparing yourself for that view of space and how do you capture that? How much time do you have? First off, do you have four minutes or do you have four days? And there's a difference there in how you prepare your time. If you only have four minutes, you need to capture every second and make sure you understand how you're going to prepare that. Uh, you know, are you going to be able to take video? Are you going to be able to write down your thoughts as soon as you land? If you have days, then it's still making sure that you bring up all the equipment that you want to use for whatever project you're going to do, whether that is filming a movie or a series of YouTube clips or whether that is, you know, painting with watercolors or photography and preparing yourself by talking to people who maybe have done that in space. Uh, painting and photography in space is different than painting and photography here on Earth. Um, making sure that you understand what equipment you're allowed to bring up if you're going for multiple days and if you can borrow the equipment that's already up on ISS or wherever you're going, drag in, etc. Um, making sure that you um, know how your own body is going to react. So whether that's talking to your medical team, maybe you have certain medical um, conditions that don't doesn't discount you from flying necessarily, but you need to make sure you understand how your body might react to it in microgravity conditions or with the G-forces. So that might be something as simple as doing a, a you know, centrifuge at a theme park or at a specific center, a real facility that does space flight training, or um, maybe something as crazy as uh, aerobotic flight, a high-performance jet, and going upside down and experiencing those G-forces there, or a, a reduced gravity flight on a zero-G corporation plane, for example. Um, so just knowing how your body is going to react. Will I have to say goodbye to the beard? No, no, I don't think so. I don't believe there's any uh, requirement. <laughs> but again, talk to your spaceflight provider. I think it's great that we live in a world where you have to talk to your spaceflight provider because there's more than one <laughs> more. <laughs> We've been speaking with space scientist and analyst Laura Forsick. Her new book is called Becoming Offworldly, Learning from Astronauts to Prepare for Your Spaceflight Journey. Laura, thank you so much for joining us and uh, helping me prepare and giving me the good news that uh, I get to keep my beard if I go to space. And you'll be an expert at those space toilets. Still to come, the hunt for water on the moon continues. Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE. I'm Brendan Byrne. Scientists are on the hunt for water on the moon. Over the past few years, planetary scientists have gathered hints that there could be water hidden in the lunar surface, but pinpointing exactly where has been challenging. University of Central Florida planetary geologist Carrie Donaldson-Hanna hopes to change that with a new mission launching soon, the Lunar Trailblazer. She spoke with Are We There Yet? intern Beatrice Oliveira about the mission and what she hopes to find. We're speaking with Carrie Donaldson, 
a planetary geologist at the University of Central Florida. Dr. Donaldson, thanks for speaking with us. Yeah, thanks for inviting me to, to talk today. You're working on a mission called Lunar Trailblazer. What's its purpose? Yeah, so Lunar Trailblazer is a really cool small satellite mission uh, that's going to be launched in 2025 and that will go into orbit about the moon. And it's gonna do a lot of mapping of the surface composition. And in particular, it's gonna use its two instruments to try to identify areas on the lunar surface where we see volatiles like water and water ice. How do we even know that there's water on the moon? Yeah, that's a really great question. So over the past you know, somewhat five to 10 years, We've been getting a lot of different observations from different missions and spacecraft hinting that there's water or there's water ice at the lunar surface. We see elevated signals of hydrogen for the lunar prospector. Um, We've seen hints of maybe water ice spectral signatures um, from the moon mineralogy mapper. Certainly when L-Cross impacted into uh, the South Pole of the moon, we saw evidence for water and other volatiles in its ejecta. Um, But we have never been able to like actually pinpoint or observe uh, unique or the, the truly unique signature of water and water ice. And so there's always been hints there that water ice should be there. And, and certainly it's cold enough at the South Pole and at the North Pole to house uh, ice and water, um, but we've never actually made real detections of it. And so this will give us our first opportunities to do that. Why is water so important? Yeah, so obviously, as we want to sustain human activity in space for longer periods of time, we need to be able to identify resources that are available uh, to those astronauts for a variety of uses, whether it's for consumption, for fuel, for building materials, all of those things will help us be able to have humans in space for longer periods of time. And so obviously the moon is our closest and nearest neighbor. And so going and getting an identification of uh, the types of volatiles that are there and the abundance would really start giving us an inventory of what types of materials we might have at hand uh, for having that sustained activity. How will Trailblazer actually confirm water? Yeah, so we have two different instruments. And the first instrument is called the Lunar Thermal Mapper. And so the lunar thermal mapper will be able to map the temperatures of the surface of the moon, in particular in regions that get very little sunlight. And so that will first tell us where on the surface of the moon is cold enough that it could actually retain or hold water in its liquid state or frozen in ice state. Um, And then we have another instrument that will be looking at the reflected light Um, that is coming off of the lunar surface and using its uh, spectroscopy, so breaking up the the light in in different wavelengths, we can look for the unique spectral signatures of water and water ice and other volatiles because each one of them has their own unique spectral signature. And so uh, the it's called the High Resolution Volatiles and Minerals Moon Mapper, or HVM cubed for short. HVM cubed um, 
was built specifically to be able to distinguish those different uh, volatiles from one another. And when when is the satellite going to be launched? Yeah, so currently uh, we have a ride share uh, with a, a space mission and NASA mission called IMAP in 2025. Um, but we're certainly uh, looking for an opportunity to potentially be launched earlier. So our instruments are currently being built at the Jet Propulsion Lab uh, out in California with Caltech. And then also the University of Oxford is building the other instrument. And so those instruments are currently being built and will be available to be added to the spacecraft for an earlier launch if NASA gives us um, a ride share. And when will that ride share launch? Yeah, if if possible, we could be ready to launch as early as a year from now. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it that's that that's that's if NASA approves that, right? I mean, obviously we are guaranteed a ride to the moon in 2025 with IMAP. Um, but certainly we will be available to launch earlier if there is opportunities for us to do so. And when it does launch, how quickly will the data be sent back to you guys? Yeah, so like any other mission, um, it'll go to the moon. Once it gets in uh, orbit about the moon, it'll obviously have to do some instrument checkouts. Um, and it'll have to do some initial observations to make sure that everything's um, functioning correctly on the spacecraft. Um, but, you know, we're talking within, you know, a month or two, the science, the science team should be able um, to start getting data back and start analyzing it. And how will this help future missions understand moon geology? Yeah, so we're, you know, obviously one of the main objectives of the mission is to really identify water. Um, but because we're carrying these instruments that also have the capability of uh, determining different rock and mineral types on the lunar surface, and because we're also going to be in a lower orbit about the moon, it means we're going to get better spatial resolution data than we've ever had before. And so combined with the higher spatial resolution and the additional spectral information, we'll be able to map out rock types on the lunar surface. And obviously, we've been able to do that um, before, um, but having new spectral information and at a higher spatial resolution, it'll get, unlock more information uh, than we currently have. And what is it like to work on a spacecraft that you're going to be sending 250,000 miles through space to the moon? That's got to be awesome. Yeah, you know, it's it's really amazing. I, I've been lucky enough um, to be a part of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter um, from, from the very beginning. Um, but even when I say from the very beginning, I got to participate as a grad student. And, you know, the instruments had already been picked and designed and built and put on the spacecraft when I got uh, added to the team. Um, but with Lunar Trailblazer, I've been involved from the get-go. So I've been getting to help um, design the instruments and pick the spectral channels that we want to fly. And so it's just been a, you know, a real delight of like being able to see this to fruition. Take what I learned in grad school and build upon that to build a bigger and better instrument and you know, just see better data. We have been speaking with Professor Carrie Donaldson. Thank you so much for chatting with us. Yeah, thanks so much for inviting me to talk. 
That was University of Central Florida planetary geologist Carrie Donaldson Hanna speaking with Are We There Yet intern Beatrice Oliveira. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. You can get it on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or visit WMFE.org slash Are We There Yet? Are We There Yet? This is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Production assistant from our intern, Beatrice Oliveira. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.